I do generally feel positive. It's a difficult time just in general to feel positive about stuff, but I think we must. And if anything, all these crises that have happened lately will, you know, show that we need better food, shorter supply chains, and we need to protect our environment much more than we are today. This is Brave New Girl podcast, and we share real stories with real impact. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and artist, and passionate about storytelling for making a positive difference in the world. Your story matters. It tells of who you are and why you do what you do in the service of others. And my guests bring you their stories, their highs and lows, and courage gained along the way. Join us for the ride. This week's guest is Alexandra Clark, investor and co-founder of Sentient Ventures, which was recently launched as a new 30 million investment vehicle designed to spur growth in firms developing meat-free animal alternative products. The fund taps into firms fueling the shift to net zero and removing animals from every stage of the supply chain. Welcome, Alexandra, to Brave New Girl podcast. Alexandra, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's leading the way in many ways and kind of disrupting the old way of doing things. And, you know, we've, we're now in a post-pandemic world, whatever that means. And so I wonder what have been the lessons that you took from the last couple of years I guess we all learned quite a lot you know about the importance of health non-communicable diseases and and the sort of risk around those but I guess it's what we haven't learned that I feel is really pertinent actually just listening to the news this morning about avian flu the spread of avian flu and the concern that it will mutate and jump to humans because avian flu is is far more deadly it's not very contagious in humans but um, for uh, past outbreaks have been, you know, 60% death rates, 60% of those infected died. Crazy. I mean, can you imagine if that became um, highly contagious, if it mutated to a point that it could jump to humans and become highly contagious within humans? It doesn't really bear thinking about, but it must be thought about. And I guess, yeah, I mean, you know, many of those in power are deciding it doesn't bear thinking about because the impact would be too enormous. And I guess that's what, you know, at at the beginning of the pandemic, I did feel this is really, you know, people are going to realize that messing with animals and messing with nature has serious, deadly and far reaching consequences for us. Um, And I really felt that, you know, at least it would ignite a debate and people would say, would realize that the way we treat animals, the way we destroy habitats, you know, it's a sort of confluence of all of these behaviours over the years. And it just seems to have sort of died down. At the start, there was a bit of conversation around it, but that seems to have have sort of dissipated. And, And I, yeah, I find it very disappointing. I find it very frightening listening to the news and thinking that because Spanish flu was avian flu and and that obviously the you know the world was recovering from a war there but people were there was a lot of malnutrition people weren't in a good state to fight off the virus but also we didn't have widespread travel migrate you know the ability to move to spread a virus and that still devastated you know the global population so I guess 
for me, it's it's more what haven't we learned about playing with nature and our treatment of animals and what the consequences could be. I talk a lot with my children who are in their 20s and their friends and and they have a, a sort of this and maybe we all do this kind of I just don't want to talk about COVID anymore. Let's move on. Um, you know, let's not kind of um, be these doom mongers, you know, that we've we've got a whole lives ahead of us. And and I think that, you know, it's a kind of human nature is to kind of bury our heads in the sand, especially when we came kind of head to head with with something that was so frightening and so global. And so you are doing something that is actually a kind of a very practical solution that sort of builds as a movement moving forward in creating alternatives to animal agriculture in in the way that it has grown and become and and how damaging that is and and I want to go more deeply into that but first you know I'm a I'm a vegan I never liked meat as a child I never liked dairy and I never liked fish it was something that was just kind of inherent to me and then I became vegan when I left home when I realized that that was actually a thing that 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 was a choice that you could have and it took me a long time I was vegan for five years in my early 20s then I went vegetarian had a couple of years as a pescatarian and then became vegan and it was only at that point that I realized that there was a, a confluence of three things that that made you think about being plant-based and one was animal welfare one was health and one was climate change and for me that what pushed me over the edge was cowspiracy so that was animal welfare in tandem with climate change but I also had my own kind of going through my own health issues so as a kind of confluence of the three that sort of was a very easy decision for me but I think it's a lot harder for most people who enjoy meat so as a child what what kind of child were you and where were the clues for what you're doing now back then yeah, sure well I can I can really identify with what you're saying because I also as a child I mean I, I also never liked meat I mean even as a baby it just seems really odd to me that babies would get fed meat but obviously they do and I was but I would I would spit it out I also didn't like dairy so I did like cheese but I didn't like cream or milk or butter and I never ate them I also didn't like eggs I didn't like fish so it's kind of you know this you get trained into eating these products often but as soon as I realized that because mum would still try and make me eat them but as soon as I realized that was dead animals I had gone out with my mum shopping and I was given a leaflet and I was probably about five years old and it was from animal rights campaigners um, who had a sort of stall in the high street and as soon as I realized that it was actually dead animals I thought well I love animals I don't want to eat them and so I went vegetarian that day and you know of course everyone said it was a phase but I never ate meat again apart from when I, you know maybe I've been in a restaurant and you know, they've accidentally put it I think we've all been through that experience as well so I was I was almost vegan but I wasn't vegan I also didn't know what vegan you know vegetarianism was was already not very widespread and veganism was very far far and few I remember always being quite frustrated that people would say you know it's your diet you 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 follow a diet and and it just frustrates me I don't think I really had the words to express that for me it wasn't a diet it was a belief system it was the belief that to 
eat animals, to kill any animals was fundamentally wrong. So when people used, I really felt like it was belittling something that was so important to me. And also coming from, you know, my mum's from a, a, a farming family and, and they're sort of quite loud and opinionated and did not, and still most of them don't agree with me to this day. Not my mum, she's vegan now, <laughs> which is brilliant. But back then I used to get a lot of stick and it used to upset me a lot and I always stood my ground. But it's difficult when you're a child, it upsets you. You know, when you've got people shouting at you and teasing you and mocking you, it's upsetting. So, you know, that experience, I'm not sure if it did really toughen me up at the time. I had a moment years later when, which was, I guess we'll go into more detail later, but when I managed to marry my work with my passion, which was when I was working in the European Parliament for one of the vice presidents, and Paul McCartney had just launched, it was in 2009, and Paul McCartney had just launched Meat Free Mondays. And for me, this was mind-blowing. It was so exciting that finally there was a campaign. You know, now we look at this and, you know, it's post-Beganuary and everything, and we're like, you know, it doesn't really go very far, one meat-free day a week. But at the time, it was incredible that, you know, someone with such a high profile was saying, we need to eat less meat, you know, just take a day off. We need... No one had said that to that extent before, and it never got so... so was so excited to see this and and I asked if we could invite him to um, Brussels to you know hold a conference because also at the time there wasn't much literature scientific literature and there was a quite a sort of landmark report called Livestock's Long Shadow in 2006 by the FAO the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN which went into great detail on on the sort of science and impacts and particularly the climate impact and greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture so we organized so i'm going on a bit of a tangent but it will come back to my childhood because we organized one of the largest hearings in even to date in the european parliament we had to you know use the hemicycle which is the voting chamber because so many people wanted to come because paul mccartney agreed to come as the keynote speaker which you know even my boss didn't think he'd agree but he agreed within a couple of days apparently stella was very excited about it as well so i just remember in the run-up I think I'd popped outside for some air on the day of the conference and there was a lot of excitement and a lot of things going on. And I just thought that little girl, if she'd known, if she could ever know that, you know, today I would be organising something and talking about how we need to stop eating so much meat. And so, you know, not all of the publicity was good. We had Nigel Farage and, and, and UKIP doing a let it beef barbecue in opposition outside. But, you know, we weren't too bothered by that. But yeah, I mean, it just really sort of validated and made it, worth all of the hard times because even if they see it, seem quite small and petty when you're a child it's difficult isn't it i think what's interesting about that is how the world has changed from when you were a child and when i was a child to to now where those discussions and debates can can happen and you can go into a restaurant and you can have a whole vegan menu just for yourself so you actually have a choice as opposed to there not being anything on on the menu at all and I think that the kind of the whole thing with, you know, because a lot of my listeners are going to be not vegans. And, you know, I can see that, you know, in the olden days when people lived off the land and they, you know, there were cows in the field and they ate their cat, the cows from the local farmer, um, they'd have meat once a week. It was it was a special thing. It wasn't like a meat free day. It was like all days were meat free except one day and meat was a special occasion where the family came together and so it was it was a very different world but what's happened is that that animal agriculture has sort of accelerated and expanded at such a massive rate that 
that welfare has the welfare of the animals has been a huge detriment as well as the knock-on effect to climate change but when you left home and you went out into the world you went to India and you can talk about what that experience was and for me I found when I went to India it was such a relief to to have um, there were two phrases it was either non-veg or veg so it was a thing that you were either you know it was mainly that you were a veg person <laughs> and then the alternative was non-veg and that was quite an extraordinary experience for me to be in that kind of environment where you weren't the odd one out and you weren't the weirdo so how was it for you yeah I mean I, yeah that's that's absolutely to to go somewhere where the default or the norm was veg and everything that had meat in was called non-veg sort of still veg the word veg was central was was yeah was really an amazing experience and, and sort of realization as well of how you know culturally the cultural norms and how we actually perceive things and and like you said I mean there, there's really a misperception that meat eating like we do now or consuming animal products like we do now is normal it's not normal precisely as you said it used to be a special treat, you know, Sunday roast, you'd use all the animal, you'd use the left, you'd use stuff for the leftovers. You would never eat three times a day, you know, this cheap quality meat. That's only in the last 70 years or so since, the, you know, the industrialization of animal agriculture. So to go to another culture and, you know, when I went to some of the holy towns like Vrindavan and Varanasi and Pushkar and, and their meat is illegal i mean i'm not sure if you get arrested i don't know what happens but it's you're not allowed to consume it and that was also an amazing thing you know the first time i could go into restaurants and and just order anything off the menu because if you've been as you i'm sure you know if you've been veggie or vegan for for many many years then now i get overwhelmed because there's so much choice i used to go into restaurants and just say can you make me a vegan dish i'll just eat whatever you prepare for me you know and not even and just i would be happy with it because that was you know that was the decision the lifestyle and that was all that was available at the time so to be able to go somewhere and just eat everything and of course it wasn't all vegan and the first time i went i actually turned vegan about a year afterwards so it was in my early 20s so i was just vegetarian then but still not eating much dairy I mean one thing I did find hard in India is all the dairy and because I never liked milk and the really sweet chai which is basically just like <laughs> milk and sugar and a little bit of tea so that was a bit you know it's polite to consume it of course so yeah I think it just really opened my mind to to cultures and just feeling you know it's all a matter of perception cultural perceptions it doesn't have to be you know in Japan meat eating was illegal for about 1,200 years. It's only in the late 1800s that, you know, an emperor went and he ate some meat and then he normalized it and sort of, you know, made it okay for, for the general public. And I think it's, you know, it's really interesting to, to learn, to understand a bit more how that happened and, and how we actually influence. We have this misperception that, you know, we're brought up, we're brought up with books about animals, old MacDonald, we, you know, we, we have this perception that it's a beautiful place with, you know, hay bales and chickens scrabbling around. And it's not, you know, you can watch my colleague Matthew Glover undercover in KFC's chicken farms if you want to see what a real chicken farm looks like. So I guess it's just, yeah, traveling and particularly to India, it sounds a bit of a cliche, you know, Westerner going, oh, it's, you know, my spiritual home. But I really understood a bit more about myself and understood a bit more about 
world and what we perceive to be normal doesn't have to be. And so then in your work in Brussels, you were trying to have um, more influence on looking at what a plant-based lifestyle could could be and and that's something that sort of changed as well that it was always vegan and there was kind of huge connotations around the word vegan and then I went vegan about five and a half years ago and people were talking about plant-based in a way that was sort of somehow it felt more accessible for for people and I I don't know kind of what with with this work that you were doing in Brussels whether that was uh, something that was a consideration? Yeah, it was absolutely a consideration. Actually, the organisation, because I, I started working in the European Parliament and then I, um, when the sort of the Lib Dem delegation that I was working for got decimated in 2014 elections, I moved to Humane Society International. And actually, we weren't even allowed to use the term vegan because it was just seen as too extreme or off-posting. So it was, it was you know, a policy to just use plant-based. I mean, to be honest, I find it a bit frustrating that we can't say vegan, but it did have the negative connotations. So you've got to think strategically. I mean, the negative connotations, I'm not sure if they were as strong in other countries because the word vegan has been adopted by many other languages. So when you're working in Brussels, you're not just working with an English speaking audience. So vegan, you know, it sort of transcends language, although you've got French as vegetarian, but that would more be more like plant based, you know, rather than vegan is is the ideology and the belief system behind it. So it did. I mean, we always just talked about plant based diets because we found it more politically neutral. And in the end, when you're trying to influence, I feel it's changed and it's been a bit detoxified lately. And I'm really pleased to see companies go out there and just use the V word. It's such a it's such a relief to see that. But, you know, I'm talking like 10 years ago, it was still perceived to be a toxic word to use. And so then there was a kind of change in your your own personal life and, and you were you came back to the UK. And sometimes these things happen to us or for us. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to you and what that meant in terms of changing your work? Yeah, sure. So I left Brussels. It was a sort of combination of about to become a single mother and Brexit was looming. So the end of 2019 and, and it looked like we were going to it looked like there was a strong possibility that we were going to no deal I think Boris had just been elected and we were going to no deal on 31st of October that year and I was due like two weeks later I just I can't you know I can't stay here I don't know if I'm even going to be an EU citizen and, and have access to healthcare and all that kind of thing um, so it was just too stressful so I just decided reluctantly because I I love Brussels very much and, and I you know I liked my life there but I moved back to the UK which wasn't you know it was it wasn't the most appealing place to, to, to move back to at the time with you know everything going on if you're not a supporter of Brexit that is particularly back then when it was such a heated debate around it all and so I moved back and I moved in with my mum so that was weird to, you know, be a grown up and suddenly find yourself unemployed, single mother living at your mum's house. It's quite, quite a shift in life, which, you know, wasn't, isn't an easy one to make, but actually it works out so well. I mean, my little girl is amazing. I know all parents say that, but it's true. And lockdown happened a couple of months, you know, when she was sort of two months old, three months old. And yeah, we were locked in with mum, which was quite good. It was a better place to be locked than most other places, or if we'd been locked, because granny was there to help with 
things and granny was baking bread and you know granny had a nice big garden and all this kind of stuff so and I I was in touch with Matthew Glover he's the founder of Veganuary as well I mean he's just done so many things he's the founder of Veganuary VFC vegan fried chicken veg capital because while I'd been working in the policy area and you do need to you need that top-down approach to to change how we consume not necessarily just to incentivize plant-based products but to create a less favorable policy environment for animal-based products. I mean, that's really what it is because at the moment, heavily subsidized, promoted by governments, getting all of these sort of contracts and tenders and that kind of thing, it's not a level playing field. So while it's a really important part of how you actually sort of shift towards more sustainable consumption patterns, getting better alternatives is, you know, that's another pillar, really important pillar. Um, of of shifting consumption so a lot of people want to eat less it's it's not that you know they like harming animals it's just meat's tasty i mean you're lucky you didn't find it tasty i'm lucky i didn't find it tasty so we didn't have to feel like we were giving up something that we really enjoyed but that's you know that's hard it's not easy so when people say well why do vegans want to have stuff that tastes like animal products it's so stupid it's like no it's not it's, they're not vegan because they don't like meat and cheese they're vegan because you know they whether it's because of animals or the environment but it's other reasons but it's not to do with the taste or the enjoyment so anyway um i was talking with matthew and he just launched veg capital to invest in early stage startups and so i joined the team and specifically to look into setting up a new fund which we've just done which is sentient ventures the reason for that is because veg capital it's early stage, but it's also more like a family office. We have one investor and he's got a fund. He's got a few funds scattered around the world like US. And so it's more like a family office and it's also a non-profit. It's run as a non-profit, which is brilliant. We're, we're committed to, to donate all profits back into the movement. So animal charities, diet shift advocacy groups, that kind of thing. But we were getting a lot of interest from potential investors saying, can we invest? And we'd have to say, no, it's, it's more of a family office. And two, you'd have to donate all your profits. And not everyone wants to be quite so altruistic. So we thought, well, this is, you know, an opportunity to set up a new fund, which would be more of a traditional and what it's part owned by Veg Capital. So Veg Capital's stake of ownership still, the, you know, will donate. It still has the same commitments, but it won't be sort of obligatory of all of the investors and, and partners. So we launched that recently and that's some... Um, to look at where veg capital looked at very early stage so smaller check sizes between 50,000 and 250,000 with a few sort of outliers that have been considerably larger investments we're looking at the early growth stage so when you know a product is like been proven it's got traction and they're looking to scale to enter new markets so between sort of 500,000 and two two and a half million but with the same mission and motive motivation is to displace animal products and to enable removing animals from production by producing better products that still you can still have all of that enjoyment if you you know some people just the best diet is whole food plant-based i mean you know you can't dispute that a lot of these products we can't well they you know they don't contain cholesterol and they can have like healthier sources of protein but the best diet is always going to be whole food plant-based, but it's quite a difficult shift. And everyone likes having a treat once in a while. You know, that's that's only human, isn't it? So I'm I'm working on a project, a, a book and a documentary that's going to be called Rip It Up and Start Again and looking at different systems around the world. And 
so what you're doing is you're you're really looking at the system of animal agriculture and you're saying this is not working for for a number of reasons and we're going to offer up a, an alternative that allows people to make a shift that people who love meat um, but understand the reason for changing the system of the agriculture and that they can do that with their, their own personal choices and so first of all what is that system that is is so wrong and why is it causing so much damage what what is it in a kind of nutshell before you can then talk about what you what you're actually doing to to give people a choice out of that yeah i mean in a nutshell yeah i mean animal agriculture it, it's often been taboo to to talk about this i mean through working in policy it's really while there is now a conversation and dialogue and action, concrete actions taken on oil and gas, you know, transport, transportation, but animal agriculture is ignored. And a, and a lot of it is because culturally farmers, you don't want to be anti-farmer, which we're not anti-farmer. Farmers feed us and they also need to provide for themselves and their family. But there's that perception that it's anti-farmer to be vegan um so animal agriculture is often you know it's exempted from discussions on climate change whereas it's one of the largest emission producing sectors so animal agriculture at a conservative estimate is is responsible for about between 14.5 and 16.5 percent of greenhouse gas emissions which is more than transportation and those are the un figures and as i said that you know they're conservative than more conservative than some other estimates so not only is it one of the greatest sources of greenhouse gas emissions and that's mainly methane which so which is produced on farm and is about 80 times more heat trapping than co2 which you know all the focus is always on co2 but it it heats the atmosphere quicker but it's shorter acting so you can get rid of it quicker as well so you know there's a lot of benefits to actually addressing that not only is producing emissions but it's also responsible for the destruction of carbon sinks so the ability to sequester carbon and store it remove it from the atmosphere and store it so that's where you're looking at deforestation i mean in the uk like 72 percent of land in the uk is used for farming 72 percent it's incredible imagine if some of that land was freed up we could you know rewilding can't happen while we have an agricultural system the majority of that land is required either to graze animals or to grow their feed. When people say, well, you know, you vegans are eating all the soy. No, we're not. The vast majority of it, the vast, vast, like, you know, you're talking 90% of it is animal feed. Deforestation in the Amazon, that's the three drivers, primary drivers, timber, but beef grazing and animal feed. And the animal feed goes primarily to chickens and pigs because they're more intensively farmed. So you see that not only is it releasing emissions, but it's destroying our ability to remove them from the atmosphere. It's using more land than any other sector, significantly more. So when you're, the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. So when you look at these hills and dales and go, isn't it beautiful? No, it's not beautiful. It's depleted. Nothing lives there. There's no, there's no biodiversity there. They can't live there. There's no, no hedgerows, you know. So our perception of of that again you know it's just a sort of perception thing i keep talking about that but it's like what we perceive to be normal but that isn't a habitat that can support biodiversity that can support life 
So we're looking, we're living through a major species extinction. It's horrifying to think that our children might not, might live on a planet that don't have giraffes. <laughs> I'm not saying giraffes are directly, but the, you know, that's human intervention is, is, but when you look at other species, like hedgehogs, it, it all goes back to agriculture. We even listened to something the other day in India, vultures are, are brinking on extinction. I can't remember the type of vulture, but they're on the brink of extinction and they're really important, you know, as carrion, as like cleaning up rotting carcasses. And it's it's also, it's farming, it's some chemical, it's some fertilizer that is very, very toxic to them. So I think that biodiversity loss, climate change, they're two major environmental crises that we're currently living through that are driven by animal agriculture. Animal agriculture is a leading driver. I'm not being extreme in, in I'm just stating a fact, it's a, a leading driver. And it's, you know, intensive animal agriculture, which is like the 90 to 95% of animal agriculture, perfect breeding ground for foodborne diseases, zoonotic diseases, zoonotic diseases, uh, diseases present in animals that if we're unlucky they jump to humans so a lot of you know a lot of viruses and diseases the majority of them that humans experience have jumped at some point from animals so when you keep animals in not very sanitary conditions where they're not very healthy and overcrowded it's the perfect breeding ground for these kind of viruses antimicrobial resistance is another the majority of antibiotics are fed preventively to farm animals not curatively but preventively because they're not kept in good shape they get ill frequently they get infections and so they're given antibiotics in their feed so that and that we now we have superbugs and if antibiotics stop working we throw our medicine system back a hundred years you know people can start dying from getting a cut on their arm you know getting pricked by a rose you could you can get a um, septicemia and so it, it's Again, it's something that's quite unthinkable, but sh we should be thinking about. It's not talked about when we talk about antimicrobial resistance. The leading user of these antibiotics is our animals, farm animals. So I think, yeah, I've probably missed out a few bits and pieces like water pollution, fishing, overfishing, like 40% of marine plastic is actually fishing tackle. So, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and well, nothing can just, you know, you can't wave a magic wand, but you could look at reducing animal agriculture to the extent that we could start allowing our planet to recover. And so that's what you're doing. You're creating, you know, if we are starting again or starting anew or reimagining the future, you're creating a food that um, allows people to move from eating animals to eating animal substitutes or alternatives that gives people the taste and the, the texture that they want. And for me, you know, it's quite nice to occasionally have a vegan sausage, uh, something that I do think about in terms of processed foods. Obviously, it's a huge animal processed foods in particularly in the States is having a, a massive impact on people's health um, and obesity you know what we don't want is then to transfer that uh, lack of nutrition into an um, an animal alternative food substance that is equally processed without without the nutrition and so I, I like to think of it in terms of you know if you take a soya bean you can either create tempeh which is kind of mashed 
beans and so you can still see the beans so it's processed but it's it's still close to the original or tofu which is much more processed and so if you want more nutrition then go for the tempeh so how do you address the the health side of this yeah i think it's a really important point and actually um i think it's it's quite overlooked because there is a lot of focus on the environmental impacts as important as they are but a recent report by Blue Horizon and the Boston Consulting Group found that one of the biggest barriers to people consuming more alternative proteins was concerns about around health and nutrition. And it's true that eating ultra-processed foods is not a healthy diet, whether they're animal or plant-based. You can say with plant-based, they have less saturated fat, there's no antibiotics in them. You know, there are certain benefits, but still it's processed and it's not something you should be basing your diet around we're very aware of this and so we are prioritizing products so there's clean label products which have fewer ingredients that your grandmother would probably understand what they were you don't need a degree in chemistry to sort of understand what's going on there and they're sort of le less than 10 less than five even better ingredients on the label so that's something that a lot of company uh, companies are moving towards because currently there's a bit of a trade-off that people go well you know, I know that it's a bit overprocessed and it may not be, but it's better for the environment and animals. So I'll go for this. But if they could have it's better for the animals and the environment and it's nutritious, then, of course, you know, that's um, sort of a no brainer that that's the next step. So we're looking a lot at fermentation, like you mentioned, tempeh. Tempeh is very nutritious and it's like pre-digested because of it's fermented with the bacteria, the culture. We're seeing a lot of really exciting developments in fermentation technology so with mycelium you can so you have precision fermentation which is where you genetically code a yeast to as a byproduct it will produce an animal a real animal product so this has been this is already used to produce insulin where it used to be pig insulin now it's um produced by precision fermentation also rennet which is the hardening agent in most cheese which used to come from a calf's stomach which would curdle the mother's milk now, certainly in the UK, primarily, it's microbial rennet produced with this method. And you can, I mean, most importantly, most excitingly, is casein, which is the, the protein in cheese, which has got it, its qualities. They don't exist in the plant-based world. So it's gooey, stretchy, melty, all of these qualities that you just can't really get in the vegan cheese. So that there's a lot going into producing that. But you've also, so that's precision fermentation then you've got the different form of fermentation that produces based on mycelium so you're not actually producing a animal alternative a real animal protein I mean but you are producing an animal alternative as in the texture and the nutrition so mycelium is like the sort of fibrous roots so to speak of of mushrooms for example so this can actually be grown and fermented to have certain nutritional properties, have a really great texture, very meat-like texture. I mean, you know, mushrooms themselves can be very meaty, particularly if you cook them in certain ways. So really looking to move more towards healthier, more nutritious, more nutritious products. So I think that that, yeah, that's something that we'll definitely see a lot more of. And we're also prioritizing ingredients and technologies so looking for better protein sources because there's like 200,000 edible plants in the world and we eat about 400 of them and of that we eat like you know about 40 or 50 90 percent of our diet is based on so there's so much you know research into the diversity of proteins out there that you know there's algae there's well the much 
much nicer name, much more attractive name, water lentils, which is, we call duckweed <laughs> in English, but water lentils, which is, you know, the translation they use in many European languages is water lentils, which sounds much more appetizing. Also hemp protein. So there's much better proteins out there that are, are nutritionally complete that can be, you know, we're at such early stages of exploring other proteins, their functions, their nutritional profile that can be used as alternatives to meat. And that, you know, there's loads going on with sort of tempeh-esque products as well that just aren't based on soybeans. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting research and development out there. And we're, yeah, we're, my mind's always blown when I speak to these founders, what they're doing. And there's a lot of education that has to happen around it, isn't there? So you know, I'll go, um, there's a place where I go out for sometimes for Sunday lunch and they, they do a, a, a mushroom burger and they always say, um, when I order it, they said, you, you won't believe that it's uh, plant-based when you, when you take a mouthful and people, so many people send it back and say, no, I ordered a, a meat-free burger. And, you know, you take a taste and it's just like, oh, my God, it really does. But it's delicious because it's got the mushroom mushroom flavor. The other thing that springs to mind from what you were saying was that a friend of mine has a, a company whereby they make hemp milk and they have to uh, constantly say, no, you're not going to get a high from from this hemp milk. And I say, well, you know, but you will feel great after drinking it <laughs> over a, a period of time. Um, so I think that, you know, it's kind of all going to be around the marketing and the, the messaging and, and the education. And so, you know, what's your vision for the future looking forward? Well, I would like to see that meat, if it exists, you know, obviously, if I were going to be very idealistic, I'd say that we would, you know, move to a completely plant based or alternative protein based diet. But certainly if meat exists, that it, it is a luxury product that is is consumed sparingly. And, you know, with the high welfare and everything, you know, moving back to the more traditional style of agriculture that can only produce small quantities. So, you know, that I guess that's a more realistic, but that are, you know, I think that the next generation's attitudes are changing. So behaviours and attitudes are changing, but there's a lot of kids that are being brought up with very, you know, I, as I said, I was brought up and the doctor said it was unhealthy and everyone used to mock me about it. Now, my daughter is brought up vegan and we talk I talk a lot to her about why you know I don't go into gruesome detail about it not yet <laughs> but um <laughs> but I explain to her a lot because she, it, I guess but fortunately she can she doesn't really realize there's much difference because she can sometimes it just needs a bit of planning like if they're having something at school but her school has her preschool the chef is brilliant and, and always caters for her but so she can have cake and ice cream and all of these kind of things. So I really believe that the the next generation is it gets we get desensitized to it. As children, we love animals. Everything, all of our toys are animals, all of our books are animals. Like we're obsessed with animals. They're just the most wonderful things. And then, you know, we have this dissonance that we start to, you know, condone and be part of the uh, widespread systematic abuse of animals so it's that kind of very par paradoxical and I think that that will be broken down because like you said it's access to information social media for all of its sort of many ills has opened up where Paul McCartney said you know if if slaughterhouses had glass walls it has opened up to a certain extent because back in my day 
you had to search for these things. You had to, you know, you had to go, I need to find, there wasn't much information literature around, so you had to actively find it. And most people weren't going to do that. Whereas now you could be scrolling on your social media and you see something, whether it's data and statistics or there are, you know, there's images of animals not having a pleasant time in, in farms. So that, you know, the, the exposure to the reality behind the client, the, the farm doors behind the farm gate is far more widespread now so i think you know that's going to start having much more of an impact and it's it's cooler you know there's these great products it's cooler and so that generation is going to grow up already we see our generation has different attitudes compared to our parents and our grandparents generation so i do see it going in the in the, the right direction but i think you know, the agricultural revolution, this is how we live and this is how we eat and this is how we breathe and this is what shapes, shapes our countryside and shapes our reality. So it is a revolution to actually think that, you know, we're not going to have farms, we're going to have like big fermentation vats brewing protein. So how how is that all going to work? How are the farmers going to be included? How do we ensure that we, you know, how do we release land that can be you know farmers can be stewards of as carbon farmers to use for carbon sequestration so there's so much so i do i do generally feel positive it's a difficult time just in general to feel positive about stuff but i think we must and if anything all these crises that have happened lately will you know show that we need better food shorter supply chains and we need to protect our environment much more than we are today so five years ago when I became vegan, it felt quite courageous to step out and, and make that decision. Nowadays, it's it feels like it's a much more open choice that people can make. And it's it's not, you know, people aren't so kind of diametrically opposed. And with what you're seeing and what you're working on and the movement you're building, how do you define courage? I think courage is to just stand up for your beliefs even when the world seems to be against you if you feel you're right and that in your heart it's for reasons of protection and love and respect then you know stand firm i wish i'd known that when i was younger i mean i think i had a certain amount of courage because i'd stand my ground but i wish i i wish i had been told i wish i'd had someone there to to go you can do it you can believe you you have the right to have these views and no one can take that away from you so i think just believing in yourself to the extent that you believe how you see the world is is okay and that you have the right to do that and in the end you might turn out to you know be right in in what you're thinking thank you so much alexandra for investing in companies who are reimagining the world we live in using your impact assessment tool to reduce animal suffering increase access to nutritious food and make reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, land use and water pollution. Thank you so much. It's brilliant work that you're doing and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I'm championing you all the way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lou, and thank you for inviting me on today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Alexandra for showing us how to do hard things and stand up for our beliefs even when it's not the easiest path to take. You can find out more about Alexandra's work on www.sentientventures.co.uk and follow her on LinkedIn at Alexandra Clark. Thank you Brave New Girl Media for producing and sourcing the guests for the show and to you for listening. 
I hope today's story inspires you to step into the spotlight and show how you too are positively impacting the world. Take care, choose courage, and see you next time.